Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Erwin. I appreciate that. So glad to be here with you today. I have, I have driven by here a million times, and I have walked around the property with Tim and Lisa before and, and feel very privileged to be here. You are often in my prayers. I, this is a regular bicycle route for me right up uh, San Dimas Avenue. I drive by here on my pedal around Pudding Stone, and, and I'm praying for you. Uh, many years I've known Tim and Lisa and appreciate their friendship, and, and you must know they love you deeply and care so much for you, and so glad that, that you can love on them in return. I know they have walked a difficult path these past few years with Lisa's health, and so, but uh, that they have a church family to rely on and draw on is so wonderful, and so thank you for loving on them. Um, we, uh, I pastor, co-pastor at Glendora Friends Church. My co-pastor is uh, Judy Shoemaker, and she's preaching today, and we're just coming to the end of the book of Job. Um, some pastors told us when we said, you know, we're, gonna, we're thinking about preaching through Job, and they said, really? And uh, they said, you mean just the beginning and the end of Job? And we said, no, we think we're going to do the middle of Job, too. <laughs> so, um, so Judy today is, I left her preaching about uh, 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 um, Elihu. And uh, so, um, so she's there preaching today, and I'm here preaching today, and I'm so glad. You know, one of the things we learned in the book of Job is that Job had three friends who uh, came to comfort him but uh, their comfort was very limited because his three friends had a formula that they lived their life by. And this formula was a very basic formula, and it was this, that if you do good in life, good things will come to you. If you do bad in life, bad things will come to you. Now, I don't think we disagree with that, but... For Job, there was something more going on that his, their friends, his friend's equation would not allow to enter into. What about Job's innocent suffering? What did he do to deserve this? And so, you know, the whole issue of evil in the world. But, but that, that idea that we have formulas, religious formulas about how the world should and ought to work, these ideas really, um, they are something that um, is, we, we're drawn to them. And I think it's because they're so simple and we want them to be effective, but we have to be careful with them because otherwise, how do we get along in life when life goes sideways on us, Right? Because I don't know about you. Maybe you're just a better person than me. But my life goes sideways and down and up and all around. And I can't predict it. And if I start having these tried and true formulas about how life ought to be working, then it, things are... I, I grow very, very distraught and unhappy. Because I'm trying to figure this thing out. I talk to a lot of pastors. I have a lot of pastors who are friends. And... One of my friends, uh, he, we were talking the other day, and he was saying about his own life. He says um, about his, his adult children, one of his adult daughters and her husband with gro uh, grown children, and they're getting a divorce. And he's trying, he's trying to figure it out. And he was telling me, you know what? We held her in our arms 
when she was a baby. We prayed for her. We prayed for her husband. We prayed for her future marriage. We did everything we knew to do. But yet this is still happening. The formulas were not working. I like formulas. I do. They're comforting to me. But I've gone through enough in life to realize that, hmm, Bruce, you must beware. But formulas are very comforting. We like neat, clean formulas. We strive for fairness in life. I mean, I want fairness. I just want a fair shake out of life is what I want. And I'm going to give it to you as well. And I think the universe owes it to me or something like that. The strong sense of justice and fair play, right? If I do right, right will come to me. If I do wrong, wrong will come to me, right? But I'm demanding life in my own terms, right? An equal reward for equal pay. But what happens? What happens when life doesn't work out according to my neat and simple formulas? What happens when I need a God of grace to drop in into my life and to and to help me through some difficult times? And what happens when I need those that same thing to be working in my brother or sister's life? as well. What kind of person will I be in the midst of their sorrow and their heartache and their hurt and maybe even their sin that I'm walking with them and trying to help them through? So today we're going to be looking at, if you have your book or you have your device, um, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke and chapter 15 is where we're at. We're going to be looking at that very famous story about the prodigal son. And really, Jesus' parable here is not about just a son, but it's a parable of what you might call two lost sons. So Rembrandt, famous Rembrandt, had a, a picture, a painting that he did. You know, he's one of the Dutch masters. And it's a, it's a painting of uh, the prodigal, called the prodigal. And, and there it shows... Um, uh, the prodigal uh, le- kneeling down, uh, rough-hewn, um, barely has shoes on his feet. His, his head is shaved, an ancient sign of, of not good things going on. Um, he's, he's distraught, he's worn out, and there he is kneeling at his father, and his father is embracing him. Now, we all know the story of the prodigal son, right? Who was a wandering, squandering, needy, and ultimately a lone guy um, because he decided that he was going to go off and and do his own thing. But when he came home, dad embraced him. And dad told the servants, quick, Bring a robe, bring a ring, bring sandals, and kill the fattened calf. All the things that talk to us about being included back into the family. That's exactly what the father offered to him. And we love the prodigal son. We love it because we need it, don't we? You and me. We need to know that God will embrace the prodigal. Because that's me. And dare I say, that's you. And we need to know that. But the loving father also had another son. And that's what I want to look at today. So Luke chapter 15, 
is where we're at, beginning in, in verse 25. Try this on for size. The loving Father, not only did He have a wandering, squandering, needy, and alone Son, but He also had a dutiful Son at home. So, verses 25 to 27. Meanwhile, and we love that, that, that little phrase there, meanwhile, that tells us something else is going on in this story. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So here's, here's the older son, the dutiful son, the son who stayed home, the son who did not wander, did not squander. He was not needy and he had the fellowship of family that he did not leave. He was out laboring in the field. He was responsible. He was not a troublemaker. He was everything you want a son to be. And he comes in from the fields. He's been working hard out there, working for the family. He comes up to the house and he, and he hears this amazing celebration going on. So he calls a servant over, asks him, what is going on here? And the servant says, you won't believe this, but your wandering, squandering, needy, and, and ultimately solitary brother has come back home. Your dad has killed the fattened calf and everything that meant that he has been embraced back into the family. Now, try this on for size. Secondly, the dutiful son protested what he perceived as the injustice of his father celebrating his younger son's return. Verses 28 to 30. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But the older brother answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Hear the accusation in the older son's voice and in his words, his anger and his hurt over what he perceives to be his father's undue favoritism of this younger son coming home. Because... This older son was concerned about, wait a second, I should be the favored son. I stayed home. I did it all right. I was working the formula. What about me? And so he protested this. And ultimately, <laughs> the outcome was this. The guy who was once the insider in the family, the older boy who stayed at home and did everything right, has now become the outsider. He refuses to go in. So the father, the father goes to his son and he pleads for reconciliation. You can hear it, though the words aren't there yet. You can hear it. Unmoved, this elder son 
focuses on himself. He demands the justice and the reward of dutiful living because this is what the formula says it ought to work out to be. He makes comparisons and he uses language like this. He says to his father, your son, not my brother, your son. <laughs> Remember, you ever done that with as parents <laughs> to each other? You know, that son of yours, you know, uh, that daughter of yours. Your son has, um, can't, uh, you know, and in, and in me, I can't even get a goat, let alone the fattened calf. So, I mean, you've not even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. There's this amazing reversal that's happening here in Jesus' parable. The prodigal lost son, the younger son, is now found. <laughs> and he's inside. But the, the found, dutiful son, the one who's never left home and always been a great son, he's now on the outside and looking in. He's so consumed with the formulas of fairness. And in fact, the formula that says I should be rewarded and favored because of my dutifulness that he cannot rejoice like his father is at his own younger brother's resurrection and repentance. So he accuses his father. He accuses his father of lacking in love for him. He says to his father, in essence, you're a slave-driving tyrant. That's what you are. That's how you've always treated me. The older son loses sight of his father's gracious love that, that yields repentance and the fruit of repentance equally for everyone, no matter how far away they have wandered. It's the elder son who now finds himself in the position of needing to repent. Huh. It's an interesting turn in Jesus' story. So, Rembrandt, Rembrandt, he has a full painting of the prodigal scene. And this is the full painting. And it shows all the people present. And if you'd allow me, um, Henri Nouwen can say it a lot better than I can. Henri Nouwen is a Dutch Christian. He was at the Hermitage in, uh, in St. Petersburg going through the museum where this painting hangs. And he was wa looking at observing this painting and, and then making some, some comments on it, which, which I want to um, read for you. So Henri Nouwen says, I recall gazing at the elder son who is standing there for long periods and wondering what was going on in this man's mind and heart? He is, with any doubt, without any doubt, the main observer of the younger son's homecoming. At the time when I was familiar only with the detail of the painting in which the father embraces his returning son, it was rather easy to perceive it as inviting and moving and reassuring. But when I saw the whole painting, I quickly realized the complexity of the reunion. The main observer, watching the father embracing his returning son, appears very withdrawn. He looks at the father, 
but not with joy. He does not reach out, nor does he smile or express welcome. He simply stands there at the side of the platform, apparently not eager to come higher up. It is true that the return is the central event of the painting. However, it is not situated at the physical center of the canvas. It takes place at the left side of the painting with, while the tall, stern, elder son dominates the right side. There is a large open space separating the father and his elder son, a space that creates a tension asking for resolution. The way in which the elder son has been painted by Rembrandt shows him to be very much like his father. Both are bearded and wear large red cloaks over their shoulders. These externals suggest that he and his father have much in common. And this commonality is underlined by the light on the, old, on the elder son, which connects his face in a very direct way with the luminous face of his father. But what a painful difference between the two. The father bends over his returning son. The elder son stands stiffly erect, a posture accentuated by the long staff reaching from his hands to the floor. The father's mantle is wide and welcoming. The son's hangs flat over his body. The father's hands are spread out and touch the homecomer in a gesture of blessing. The sons are clasped together and held close to his chest. There is light on both faces, but the light from the father's face flows through his whole body, especially his hands, and engulfs the younger son in a great halo of luminous warmth, whereas the light on the face of the elder son is cold and constricted. His figure remains in the dark, and his clasped hands remain in the shadow. So we've talked about the loving father having a dutiful son. We've also talked about this dutiful son protesting what he sees as the injustice of the father's celebration of the younger son's resurrection. But thirdly, the father embraced both his faithful son and his repentant son, who was coming home. Both of them. Look in verses 31 and 32. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Look what the father does here. The father turns to the elder son and he, he tenderly addresses the elder son's concerns, doesn't he? These concerns of fairness and justice. He affirms his elder son's status and place in his heart. You're my boy. He reminds the elder son that everything I have is yours. What are you afraid of losing? Everything. Look at that language. The father says always versus the elder son's never. In a sense, the father says to the elder son, you wanted a goat, son? The fattened calf was yours. Everything I have is yours. You want the fattened calf? Go get it. You have the life. Already, because that's what the younger son asked for when he came to his dad. He says, literally in the original language, he says, the younger son came to dad, dad, I want my share of the inheritance. Literally what it says in the Greek is, I want the bios. I want the life. And dad says, okay, 
But he says to his older son, son, the life is yours. I'm not withholding anything from you. You're just not taking it. He tells his, young, his older son, we had to celebrate your brother's resurrection. It's his, the father is concerned about joy, not fairness. He's concerned about repentance. That's the outcome that he wants. So let me ask you this. What did the elder son do? What's the end of the story? Oh, it's not there. We don't know the end of the story. Jesus didn't tell us. I think that's on purpose. There was no, and they lived happily ever after. We, we as the reader, we're left to wonder, what's going on here? What happened? Because I think we're left to wonder, what about me? What would I have done if I were that elder son? Can I suggest three different things for us to, to consider working on and, and how these things might apply in our own lives? I would want you to open your heart in all of these ways. First, think about this. For all of us, your faithfulness to Jesus is right and good. And our Heavenly Father commends you for that. That you're doing the right thing in the world. That you're being dutiful to God and to the Christian way. That's good and right. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, he, in maybe one of his few moments of truth, he says, he talks about there being a long obedience in the same direction. We have to stick with it, right? And that's what happens whenever we stick with it is... We, we, we see good things come out in the end. That's a formula, right? It's a good one. Clean, disciplined living. That's the proper response to God, right? We want that. So, do this. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Keep going in your way. I learned this from my grandma. My grandma uh, grew up in the prairies of northwest Oklahoma, and uh, she, she, her father came to know Jesus in a camp meeting out there, um, and, uh, and whenever, whenever he, he came home, I mean, he was, he was uh, saved through and through. He came home, and he got rid of his pitch cards, and he got rid of his odd fellows membership links, and he did the whole thing. He was, I'm done with the past, and I'm going forward with the new. And my grandma was watching this, and that was her life. She watched this happen, and she had moments whenever she would be out in the prairies praying, She had, and she just stayed faithful. And then whenever little Henri, little red-headed Bruce came along, bouncing on her knee, um, I got to observe my grandma's long faithfulness that showed itself, and I'm so glad about this, in my mom's life. Because I had to figure out if I was going to live for Jesus like my mom or go the world's way like my dad. And I watched the two different ways of living in my household, and I chose mama's way, right? Because it's a good way to be. Look, if you've grown up in the church, if you have, if you're, have a heritage of, of parents that know and love the Lord Jesus, let me just say to you, whoa, that's the best thing in the world. You may not, you know, and it may be that you don't have the most awesome testimony in all the world, like, oh man, I, I, you know, God drugged me out of the gutter and I, you know, I've been, you know, 
Maybe this might be that you're someone who said, I just love Jesus and I've just gone after Him the whole time. Keep doing it. Open your heart to continued faithfulness for the sake of others. We're faithful to Jesus for the sake of others. It's not so I can have a, a, a comfy teddy bear feeling. It's so that others can come to know Jesus the same way I have. Secondly, consider this. Exterior righteousness can mask interior lostness. This is the tough one. Exterior righteousness can mask interior lostness. Look, we can get lost behind a screen of duty and self-righteousness if we're not careful. And we've got to be, as Christians, on the lookout for that. What does that mean? That means that behind this exterior of looking good and looking righteous and looking all good, there can be lostness of resentment and jealousy, of selfishness and bitterness, of anger and condemnation. And we must be careful in looking about that and always needing to put off the what about me syndrome. Well, what about me? I've always been here. What about me? Don't my, my thoughts and opinions count? What about me? Because that's what the elder son was concerned about. We too easily, if we're not careful, we, we forget our own repentance and rescue. Right? Do you remember your repentance and rescue? Your own do you remember that? I do. Man, God has brought me out of some really crazy places that if I weren't careful, man, I'd be, I would be in a gutter somewhere. I know what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Remember your own story. Man, and, and i got to tell you too, um, <laughs> old Bruce Butler, I can do duty really well, right? I mean, man, I got it all down. I got things wired. I got the formulas all right there. But if I'm not careful, I then start demanding that all this reward and favoritism starts to come my way in the kingdom. And then when it doesn't start coming my way, <laughs> I then I get all, all bent out of shape. So, Henri Nouwen, if you don't mind, I just want to share this little thing with him because he started to consider this about himself and he looked into his own heart. And, and, he, and this is some of the things that he found. He says, when I listen carefully to the words with which the elder son attacks his father, self-righteousness, self-pitying, jealous words, I hear a deeper complaint it is the complaint that comes from a heart that feels it never received what it was due. It is the complaint expressed in countless subtle and not-so-subtle ways, forming a bedrock of human resentment. It is the complaint that cries out, I tried so hard, worked so long, did so much, and still I have not received what others get so easily. Why do people not thank me, not invite me, not play with me, not honor me while they pay so much attention to those who take life so easily and so casually? 
It is in this spoken or unspoken complaint that I recognize the elder son in me, now in rights. Often, I catch myself complaining about little little rejections, little impolitenesses, little negligences. Time and again, I discover within me that murmuring, whining, grumbling, lamenting, and griping that go on and on, even against my will. And the more I dwell on the matters in question, the worse my state becomes. The more I analyze it, the more reason I see for complaint. And the more deeply I enter it, the more complicated it gets. There is an enormous, dark drawing power to this inner complaint. Condemnation of others and self-condemnation, self-righteousness and self-rejection keep reinforcing each other in an ever more vicious way. Every time I allow myself to be seduced by it, it spins me down in an endless spiral of rejection. As I let myself be drawn into the vast interior labyrinth of my complaints... I become more and more lost until in the end, I feel myself to be the most misunderstood, rejected, neglected, and despised person in the world. Of one thing I am sure, Nowen writes, complaining is self-perpetuating and counterproductive. Whenever I express my complaints in the hope of evoking pity and receiving the satisfaction I so much desire, the result is always the opposite of what I tried to get. A complainer is hard to live with, and very few people know how to respond to the complaints made by a self-rejecting person. The tragedy is this. Often, the complaint, once expressed, leads to that which is most feared, further rejection. Tough deal. Tough deal. You know, we have a reader board sign over at our church on Lone Hill like you do here. Um, and a few months ago, we had uh, a sign up there, and I remember it. It says, forgiveness. talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness sets a prisoner free. And I realize that prisoner is me. Hmm. I think there's a lot of truth in that. So would you do this? Would, if this is where you're at and you feel the Spirit's tug in your heart, would you repent of your callousness to others and your jealousy of God's grand love that goes out to all people? He loves you too. But don't you want Him to love all folks? I do. I do. Do you trust in God's all-forgiving love? We have to work at it, don't we? So open your heart to repentant sinners coming home, including yourself. Thirdly, you are Father God's beloved child. This is so important for you to understand and to take into your life. You are Father God's beloved child. So last few years we've been doing Alpha. Uh, Alpha is a, a series of exploring Christianity and the claims of Christianity. Who is Jesus? Why did he have to die? What is prayer? What about Scripture in the church? And so um, in Alpha, which began in uh, London and has now gone all around the world, um, one of the speakers for Alpha is a guy named Charlie Maxey. Charlie Maxey, is a, is a, he tells his story, and, and he was an artist and a, a very ardent atheist. 
and with his clique of friends that he was with, boy, they would just go after anything religious and especially Christian. And, uh, and he remembers um, being at a home one time with a lot of his friends who were not Christians at the time. And he was laying down in bed and he said he woke up to feel one of his friends sit on the end of his bed. And this, and this friend was a very successful artist getting multiple um, five figures for art pieces, that sort of thing. Very successful. And his friend was sitting down on the edge of the bed crying. And Charlie gets up and says, what's going on? And his friend says, I thought this would be it. Charlie says, what do you mean? He says, I thought once I got all this and all the success and accolades and all this, I, I thought this would be it. But this isn't it. And Charlie realized in something in his own heart that he was looking for something more. And he stumbled into an alpha at Holy, Holy Trinity Brompton Church in, in London. And at first he couldn't take it. Uh, he walked out. But he, he, something just kind of kept on him. And he, he went back and eventually, eventually he gave his heart to Jesus. And he, and he has uh, become a sculptor and artist of the prodigal. And so this, this is a sculpture of his. This is uh, the prodigal that he uh, sculpted. And you see there how uh, the father is, is embracing the son. And this is what Charlie Maxey, the author, or the, the artist, says about this. He says he's trying to tell people what he himself needed to hear. You are loved. You are loved. Friend, you are loved. You need to hear that. You need to drink it in. You are Father God's beloved child. Let me ask, in this story of the prodigal and the two lost sons, which son are you? Either way, both are loved by the Father. Both have the Father's life. Everything I have is yours. So, could I ask you to do something? Would you determine to love as a first reaction to everything that comes your way in life? To express God's love for that. Choose joy over wanting to be favored. Choose Repentance and welcoming home the repentant over any kind of love or, 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 or duty or, or favor or fairness. So at just as the end of, the, of Jesus' parable had no, no conclusion to it, well, I'm, I'm going to ask you, what will you do? Now that you have heard God's word, what will you do? Maybe the one thing that you should do is to open up your hearts to God's faith. I, like I told you, I've driven by... Hundreds of times, Hilltop Church, and love it. Appreciate 
you all and the ministry you have. I have I have walked with you. You don't know this, but but Tim and I and Mike Barnett we get together regularly and we have for years and years and 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 we talk about each other's ministry. And I have been praying for you and what God is doing among you. And you have been so good to the Lord and loving Him and loving on your neighborhood and reaching out and doing your very best. We're all trying to do that. We're all trying to figure out what church is in this new day. Wow, it's tough stuff out there. And I just want you to know you're not the only ones. <laughs> you know, we're trying to all figure it out. But I've just been so impressed with Hilltop Church. Continue, continue, friends, to open wide the doors of your hearts. Open wide your back doors. And let people in, right? Deny any kind of, well, what about me? Impulses that, that rise within you. Share ownership. Share ownership of what everything I have is yours, God says. Share it, right? You can never outgive God. Forgo privileges and preferences and invite all in for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about, right, friends? So here we are, Lord Jesus. We come before you grateful that you uh, provide uh, a place and a people and uh, a, a setting for us to worship you Sunday by Sunday. And Lord, I see, I see dear, dear faithful folks who love you in tremendous ways. And I ask, Father, that you would continue to shower your spiritual blessings upon them as they work hard to reach out and to love on folks for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I join in their prayers for their pastors as they come home, that you'd bless Tim and Lisa in their life together. I'm so grateful, Lord, for, for your work in their lives as they've gone through difficult times and have demonstrated what it is to, to live a faithful and good life in you. Lord, um, that you would hear our hearts and that you would know that we too are repentant folks coming home to a loving God. Thank you, Father, for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.